Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 17th. In today's news, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State says he faces GOP pressure to discard legitimate ballots. President Trump races to auction off drilling rights in Anwar before Joe Biden can stop him. And California imposes its strictest COVID restrictions since the spring. But first, the big idea. The White House is preparing to announce as soon as this week plans to roughly halve the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan from around 5,000 to 2,500 before the inauguration. Missy Ryan, Ellen Nakashima, Dan Lamoth, John Hudson, and Karen DeYoung report that Trump is expected to announce a more modest troop reduction in Iraq as well, bringing the military force there from about 3,000 to 2,500 troops. But the reductions may not bring an end to America's long-running wars as militant groups continue to evolve and fracture. The proposed cuts also have uncertain meaning less than 70 days before Biden takes office and begins scrutinizing his predecessor's decisions. Trump's decision to make a major reduction in Afghanistan, where violence has been surging as Afghan negotiators engage in halting peace talks with the Taliban, is bringing to a head tensions that have intensified between some at the Pentagon and the White House during this chaotic transition period. Sources caution us that the plans from the White House, where foreign policy zigzags have been common, could change. But some aides are proposing, and indeed planning, a Trump speech this week to announce the planned cuts in Afghanistan. Indeed, a draft of the remarks is circulating around the West Wing. Days before he was dismissed as Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper sent Trump a top-secret memo that warned in dire terms that conditions on the ground are not adequate to make additional troop cuts in Afghanistan at this point. Esper said it would undermine peace talks, and would allow the country to become a haven for terrorists who could attack the United States' homeland. His assessment was based on input from senior military leaders. Last month, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien got into a public spat with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, about the course ahead in Afghanistan. At the time, Milley said that O'Brien's public assertion that troop levels would be cut to 2,500 by January was purely speculation. O'Brien has been grumbling to other senior administration officials that Milley isn't with the program and that he's not listening to the president enough and otherwise being disloyal. Reports about Trump's imminent announcement have prompted alarm among conservatives, hawks on Capitol Hill, and warnings from a handful of senior Republicans. In an impassioned floor speech yesterday afternoon, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Kentucky Republican, implored the president not to end U.S. military operations in Afghanistan. McConnell said it would be an embarrassment, quote, reminiscent of the humiliating American departure from Saigon in 1975. While avoiding direct criticism of Trump, McConnell encouraged the president to preserve the limited but important role of those who remain. He said leaving the field in Afghanistan to the Taliban and ISIS would broadcast around the world a symbol not just of U.S. defeat, but also national humiliation. Trump's plans have been only marginally coordinated, if at all, with his negotiating envoy to the Afghans, Salme Khalilazad, as well as the Afghan government, which has been deeply frustrated with Trump. While the president has battled many of his top aides in his pursuit of a withdrawal, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has come to accept the president's wishes and no longer seeks to warn him of how much more dangerous the world could become 
if the president follows through on what he wants to do. Carter Malkazian, a former Pentagon official who took part in some of the talks U.S. officials have conducted with Taliban leaders in recent years, said that if the Taliban can see that they're winning on the battlefield because Trump's not going to stop them, then they don't need to make any more concessions at the negotiating table in Doha. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting today that last week the president sought military options for attacking Iran. Trump asked top advisors during an Oval Office meeting this past Thursday whether he had options to take against Iran's main nuclear site before he leaves office. A range of senior advisors dissuaded the president from moving ahead with a military strike. The advisors in the room included Millie Pompeo, as well as Vice President Pence, and Chris Miller, the acting defense secretary who replaced Esper. These advisors warned Trump that any strike against Iran's facilities would easily escalate and spiral into a broader regional conflict during the final weeks of Trump's presidency at a time when he's desperate for credit for ending what he likes to call the endless wars. The Times reports that any strike, whether missile or cyber, would be focused on Natanz, where the International Atomic Energy Agency reports that the Iranian uranium stockpile is now 12 times larger than what was permitted under the nuclear accord that Trump abandoned two years ago. After Pompeo and Milley described the potential risks of military escalation, the Times reports that officials left that Oval Office encounter believing a missile attack on Iran was off the table. But there is still widespread fear that Trump is looking at ways to strike Iranian assets and allies, including militias in Iraq. And the Times says that Defense Department and other national security officials are privately expressing worries that the president might initiate operations, whether overt or secret, against Iran or other adversaries during the final days of his term, creating a mess that a president-elect Biden would need to clean up. This perhaps is why officials leaked to the gray lady what's going on in an effort to box in POTUS and prevent escalation. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Brad Raffensperger said yesterday that he has come under increasing pressure in recent days from fellow Republicans, including Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham, who he said questioned the validity of legally cast absentee ballots in an effort to reverse Trump's narrow loss in the state. In a wide-ranging interview with our Amy Gardner about the election, Raffensperger expressed exasperation over a string of baseless allegations coming from Trump and his allies about the integrity of the results, including claims that Dominion Voting Systems, the Colorado-based manufacturer of the voting machines that Georgia uses, is a leftist company with ties to Venezuela that engineered thousands of Trump votes to be left out of the count. None of that's true. The atmosphere has grown so contentious that the Secretary of State and his wife, Tricia, have been receiving death threats in recent days, including a text message over the weekend that read, quote, you better not botch this recount. Your life depends on it. Now, Biden has a 14,000 vote lead in the Peach State, and it is very unlikely to be overturned. Even if it was, Biden would still win the election, assuming that the Pennsylvania results are not overturned. The normally mild-mannered Raffensperger saved his harshest language during his interview with Amy for Congressman Doug Collins, who's leading the president's efforts in the state and whom Raffensperger called a liar and a charlatan. He said that the hand-counted audit that began last week will prove the accuracy of the Dominion machines. And he noted that election officials in one county, Floyd, did discover about 2,600 eligible votes that were not included in the initial tallies because of a failure to upload them off of a memory stick. 
The Secretary of State's office says those votes probably would have been discovered during the re-canvass, but nonetheless, it has called for the resignation of the county-level election director. Raffensperger said he was stunned that Graham, a South Carolina senator, appeared to call him up to suggest that he find a way to toss out legally cast ballots. Absent court intervention, he doesn't even have the power to do what Graham suggested. In an interview on Capitol Hill last night with our Paul Kane, Graham denied that he had suggested that Raffensperger toss legal ballots, calling that characterization ridiculous, but he acknowledged that he had made the call. Back in the White House, Trump is brooding behind the scenes as his legal options continue to dwindle. His campaign has begun winding down its operations, but the president, frustrated that his lawyers were not appearing more frequently on television to amplify his baseless claims that he's the winner, has elevated attorneys Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis to run his legal and public relations efforts to overturn the results. Some of Trump's advisors have been urging him to permit the Biden transition operation to officially begin its work. But the president, who's actively, frankly, incessantly talking about running for president again in four years, has refused those entreaties, arguing that he thinks his core supporters want to see him, quote, keep fighting, as he likes to put it. One top Trump advisor told our Josh Dossie that Trump is, quote, more dug into his position now than he was at the beginning. And this person said that almost all the people who work for Trump at this point are despondent that the boss is being so delusional. Giuliani told Trump in a meeting this past Friday that his advisors had been lying to him about his odds of prevailing and that he still can pull this out. That is what prompted Trump to put Giuliani in charge. Another campaign official says it's really become more of a public relations fight than a legal one at this point. That might be why last night, three lawyers who have been representing Trump's campaign asked a judge to withdraw from the Trump campaign's lawsuit attempting to block the certification of results in Pennsylvania. It's a case that legal experts have described as frivolous. The filing doesn't give a reason for the change, which comes on the eve of a significant hearing in the matter. And it also comes a week after a prominent regional law firm, Porter Wright Morrison Arthur, withdrew from the case altogether. Harrisburg-based lawyer Mark Skringi will take their place and become lead counsel for Trump on the Pennsylvania case. For what it's worth, just 10 days ago, the new Trump lawyer was quoted saying publicly, there are no bombshells that are about to drop that will derail a Biden presidency, including these lawsuits. Now he's the one litigating that suit. Number two. The Trump administration is asking oil and gas companies to pick spots where they want to drill in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as it races to open the pristine wilderness to development and to lock in generational drilling rights before Biden takes office. Juliet Eilperin reports that a call for nominations will be published later today in the Federal Register. This will allow companies to identify tracts on which to build during an upcoming lease sale on the refuge's nearly 1.6 million acre coastal plain, which Trump is insistent must be scheduled before January 20th. A Republican-controlled Congress in 2017 authorized drilling in Anwar, a vast wilderness that's home to tens of thousands of migrating caribou and waterfowl, along with polar bears and Arctic foxes. The administration is pressing ahead with other moves to expand energy development and scale back federal environmental rules during its final weeks. It aims to finalize a plan to open up a vast majority of the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska to drilling, as well as to adopt a narrower definition of what constitutes critical habitat for endangered species, and also to make it easier for companies to get off the hook when they kill migratory birds to reduce the liability threshold. At the Energy Department, officials are also racing to weaken energy efficiency standards for showerheads 
as well as washers and dryers before Inauguration Day. The government also plans to auction off oil and gas rights to more than 383,000 acres of federal land in the lower 48 over the next two months. Number three, the world welcomed with relief the announcement by Moderna on Monday that initial results suggest its coronavirus vaccine candidate is nearly 95% effective at preventing the illness. Markets soared on the promising news. As a dose of caution, experts at the World Health Organization in Geneva warned about the long slog that they still see ahead. Public health officials have long warned that the development of an effective vaccine is just the beginning of a struggle just as steep, an effort to distribute that vaccine around the world. The caution at the world's top public health body was not directed toward the incredible achievements of Moderna and Pfizer and others, but at helping create a realistic understanding of the enormous task involved in actually delivering the immunizations. Supply and delivery pose high hurdles, even if a vaccine is highly effective. Back here in the United States, governors and mayors moved rapidly on Monday to slow the galloping spread of COVID. Griff Woody, Merrill Cornfield, and Hannah Denham report that in a mirror of the country's spring shutdown, California took some of the most dramatic steps yet. Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, announced that he is pulling what he called the state's emergency break. The vast majority of the Golden State, 94% of her 40 million people, will now live under the most restrictive stage of reopening. Indoor dining, fitness center workouts, and religious services are all being suspended. New Jersey and Philadelphia have also just announced significant new restrictions. The data explain why. Our country has racked up more than 100,000 new infections every day for two weeks running. The grim milestone of a quarter million dead Americans will be reached by the weekend. The nation's current spike in infections, our third wave, is the most severe to date. With families and friends expected to gather for Thanksgiving next week, the spread could easily worsen. But it's not inevitable, and experts say these measures being announced, if heeded, could have a pronounced impact in drawing down infections, just as they did in the spring. But officials are eyes open. They're battling widespread fatigue and impatience. State and local officials are also working in the shadow of a federal government that's increasingly distracted and disjointed. There are so many things, big and small, over the last few months that have been negatively impacted by this contagion. As families, and I'm sure you, know what to do about Turkey Day, Arlington National Cemetery announced last night that it is canceling its annual Wreaths Across America event, which was set for December 19th. For those who don't know D.C., every year hundreds of volunteers join together to place wreaths on every single grave in Arlington. It's really quite a touching display and a really appropriate holiday tribute to the men and women who have given the last full measure of devotion to our country from the Civil War to Afghanistan. Thousands of wreaths covering those grassy hills where our fallen heroes will never be forgotten. The cemetery said it made this decision with regret after deciding it could not put sufficient controls into effect to mitigate the risks of such a large event under current and expected conditions. That makes sense, of course. But still, it's a bummer. The cemetery says it would like to resume the event next year. Let's all hope they can. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.